0: Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast brought to you by S.A.M. Rams. Welcome to another episode of the Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast. This is in collaboration with S.A.M. and Rams. My name is Hamza Ajaz and today our guest is Dr. Linda Regan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm very excited to be here. We're very fortunate to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. For those of you who might not be familiar with Dr. Linda Regan, she is an associate professor and vice chair of education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. She serves as a program director for the Emergency Medicine Residency Program, as well as a unique combined emergency medicine anesthesia residency program, as well as serving as a fellowship director for the Medical Education Fellowship. Dr. Regan is well known at Johns Hopkins for her work as an educational program builder and for the unique focused advanced specialty track or FAST program within the residency that allows residents to develop a focused niche during their final year of residency. So you're quite the expert, Dr. Regan, it seems like on medical education. You've been involved with a lot of work that goes into residency development. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did the passion for emergency medicine first come to be? How did that first arise?
1: So I'll say... I feel like I was always drawn to emergency medicine. And I tried really hard as a medical student to be the blank slate that everyone told me I should be. I had been involved at, in college, actually, in EMS and already thought emergency medicine might be something I'd be interested in and realized throughout medical school that there were pieces of every specialty I really enjoyed. I loved kids, but I didn't want to do it all the time because I found myself feeling sad a lot. I loved OBGYN but I didn't think I wanted to do it all the time. I loved procedures, but I didn't know that I wanted to be in the OR for long periods of time. And and ultimately, everything that I loved about every specialty, I felt like I found in the emergency department, despite me sort of kept saying, you know, think of other things, maybe explore. The favorite part of every medical rotation was going to the emergency department to admit the patient and to think through what the possibilities could be to really be a little bit of a detective, which was sort of fun. But I found that really the thing I enjoyed the most was that I felt I could make quick connections with patients to really understand how I could make not just an impact on their clinical care, but on probably for some the worst day that they had been having and really felt it was an opportunity to see sort of this broad swath of patients across, you know, adults, Children, medical, surgical, you get to do a little bit of everything, but really, I think some people maybe think we don't really develop expertise because you do a little bit of everything. But I think that we get to develop expertise in patient communication, in compassion, and you know, trauma, in OB, in, in everything, which is what makes it challenging and fun. It's, I don't know, I would say the question is why not emergency medicine, right? It's it's a little bit of the best of everything. And it really does position you to make a huge impact on your patients, not just from a medical perspective, but from a social perspective, from an emotional perspective. Um, And I find that extraordinarily rewarding, personally. um, It's also a fabulous place to teach. And, you know, it sort of checks all my boxes. And and that's how I ended up where I am now.
0: That's incredible. And I feel like that's very similar to a lot of people who are drawn to our specialty in regards to both the clinical aspect of providing that acute care where you're trying to determine, trying to differentiate the undifferentiated uh, chief complaint. But just going beyond that, I'm so glad that you mentioned this in terms of the social aspect of emergency medicine or being able to meet people at different walks of life, uh, you know, and talking to them from their individual aspects of why they're there and their worst day of their life for a lot of these individuals. And we're able to make that impact. That's very true. And it's hard to say that is a, you know, a broad encompassing term for a lot of different specialties, but it's very unique to ours where we have such a large volume, where we have that potential to make that impact. But going a little bit more in detail in regards to your particular interest within emergency medicine, I know you're, I've heard of your talks, I've read some of your articles, you're a well-known national leader in medical education, you've developed, you know, incredible programs within your residency at Johns Hopkins as well. But where did that interest first come to be? How did that passion develop for residency education or uh, medical education in general? Well, thank you for your kind
1: comments. Um, you know, I think that everyone always asks the question, like, if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? And, you know, I spent, I think, a good portion of my young, formative childhood years thinking I would grow up to be a teacher. And for me, understanding how to, how to reach people in a way that met them where they were was, something I was really interested in and and did a lot in high school and college, wherever there was an opportunity to teach, I was there. Signed me up, you know. I, I taught in high school for some small subset programs, I taught in my EMS crew and really wanted to be the best educator that I could be. And I don't think as a young person, you realize sometimes that you're investigating educational methodology or technique, right? You just wanna get people to understand what you're saying. Um, When I went through residency, I, I also love to teach. And in fact, I remember a a nurse saying, you know, like, look, if you don't end up in a department where you're going to be able to teach people, you're going to drive all your nurses crazy (laughs) because we think everything you're saying is super interesting, but like we're busy and we don't want to hear it. (laughs) And, you know, early on, and I think this is a lot of issue that people find when they start a, a career, they don't know what their interests should be. They don't know how to start. And, and the best advice that anyone ever gave me was, you know, Linda, just, Find something you love, and talk about that. And I felt like that was crazy. Like I had to, you know, I had to go out and find all these medical things to talk about. Right? That's sort of how emergency physicians and physicians in general make their careers. And I love talking about medicine. Don't get me wrong. But the stuff that fascinated me, that I felt I had a lot to share, were in the areas of you know building the program and thinking of how you could revise what you were doing to to meet residents who were struggling. You know, it honestly was stuff I was doing every day that I think as educators we often overlook the day-to-day things we do that have value outside the walls of where we are. And so I started just thinking of, you know, gosh, I am maybe doing something someone else wants to learn about, maybe they'd care. And so I started on committees and I started Posing ideas. Do you think anyone would want to hear a talk on like how to remediate residents who can't communicate effectively? Because I feel like I do that all the time, and everyone's like, "Oh, that sounds great." And and honestly, I I started most of my early talks either partnering with other people or you know establishing uh, small little little snippets on just concrete takeaways that could make your program or you better. And I think especially as a junior educator, it's hard sometimes to think you have value to give to other people who are more senior than you or who've been doing it a long time. But anybody can teach anybody anything. I think we all recognize that half our shifts in medical students teach us something, right? Because they remember it and we don't. And just realizing that if you think about what, one, you do all the time, and two, you enjoy, like that you wouldn't, feel annoyed if you had to do it midnight every once in a while, right? Those are the things that you should be areas you explore for your professional development and professional growth. So I started talking about program building. I started talking about communication. I started talking about remediation and ultimately realized in all of these paths that what I really love is understanding how people learn. And those are the fundamentals that build everything that we do but in a, in a more research way, right? Not just in a, you know, oh, you can be a better bedside teacher if you just did this. And so I, you know, I think I built a lot of my early career talks on just things I was doing all the time. And then I would research them and ask other people and partner with people that I found who could mentor me. And then ultimately, I think once you realize you have a bit of a foothold in a topic, you should be someone who then pulls someone up with you, right? You know, the me of 10 years ago who, is maybe not feeling so confident or secure, but you think, wow, that person has great ideas. I never would have you know, been where I am now if those people 10 years ahead of me hadn't said, hey, Linda, that's a great idea. You should give a talk on that. So I talked about what I knew and what I knew was what I was doing every day. And who knew that that would be a big academic career, right? I, I certainly didn't know that 15 years ago, but I don't give any talks that I don't love, which I think makes it not really feel often like work where you can, you know, sit in front of people and talk about something you find personal value in and know that if you're talking to a bunch of program directors, they're hopefully going to find value in it because it helped you do the thing you did. So I talked about what I was doing and what I loved. Surprise, surprise to me. It um, it went rather well, I think, you know, otherwise maybe it wouldn't be being interviewed on the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, most definitely. It, it clearly has. Definitely has. I, I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, the sage advice of, if you're a young educator here you're learn,' you're very young in your career and partnering yourself up with someone who's more senior and kind of partnering a talk with them to help guide you through the you know the early you know difficulties you might face as well. And then obviously the fact that you're mentioning, Talk about what you know. Talk about what you're interested in. Research what you're interested in. And what, as you mentioned, you know, you know, very conveniently, like something that you wouldn't mind talking about in the middle of the night, or something researching in the middle of the night. You know, obviously, with our shifts being as they are. Uh, so that's very excellent advice there. So let's talk about a little bit more about the residents or the young individuals and learners who've identified the junior faculty who has identified that they are indeed interested in education let's say that they are, okay, you know what, I want to make a career out of this or something Something that I'm really passionate about is medical education. What resources or what opportunities would you recommend to those young residents or young trainees who are trying to figure themselves out in terms of, well, within the umbrella of medical education, there's obviously so many different snippets of it. There are bedside teaching, there's teaching uh, that you do at a residency level, medical student level. How do you go about figuring out the best ways that these residents can get involved with so that they can actually learn more about it and then also hopefully make a long lasting career out of it.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great question. And, and based on where people are in their careers, the answer probably would be different for residents. Cause I think that's probably, you know, maybe a large portion of the audience. I would say that, you know, the benefit of being a resident in exploring is that you are already situated in a place where people are teaching. Right. So you, I would encourage you to, to stop for a second and think of like, when was the last time you were engaged in any formal educational program? Was it your sim program that you did a simulation in? Was it, you know, the ultrasound program where you went through your, you know, QA day and sat and looked at ultrasounds or scanned one-on-one with a faculty member? Was it um, your resident didactic conference or was it, you know, a small, small group at conference where, you know, faculty came and talked to you about either a clinical topic or a non-clinical topic. There is education happening all around residents all the time. And I will say hundred percent when residents come to residency directors and clerkship directors and say, hey, could I get involved in fill in the blank of whatever educational program you have there? There is almost no one who's going to say, ah, no, we have plenty of people who want to donate their time for free to do all that teaching. So, you know, I would, I would say, I think sort of, I feel like I'm going to say the same thing I just said, start teaching something that you really love, right? If you love ultrasound, volunteer to scan with the interns or, you know, help teach in the medical student curriculum. If you think SIM is great, you know, ask if you can learn how SIM cases get developed or participate in developing a new SIM or just come and see a SIM for a junior resident. You know, if you think that giving lectures is super fun and you really want to hone that, ask if you can give an extra lecture, right? There's always space (laughs) for you to do something like that. And and I think trying your, your hand out at a number of different modalities to see, you know, I really love running a small group. I really love SIM. I love ultrasound or I love medical students. And I want to get involved more in that program because I, I do think that people often think, oh, you know, being a teacher sounds great. And then they do it and they don't love it. Right. And, and that's okay. Not everyone needs to love being, you know, a teacher for your career or an educator or an educational researcher, but I think that the biggest predictor of success in fellowship and in academic careers are people who start to do it and and like it. You don't have to be great at it when you start. That's partly why fellowships and academic careers exist, because we want to develop people. But I would say give things a try. I think it's similar to the question of like, what are residency directors looking for when medical students come through, right? We're looking for people who are passionate about something, who've done something in that domain. and. And can say, yeah, this is what I got out of it, and maybe this is what I still need to get out of it because I'm not there yet. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing a fellowship. You know, with regards to formal programs, based on the level of the university you may be affiliated with, there might be formal programs at, at some places. I know, you know, we're a large academic institution, right? There's lots of development-type activities happening around. For some smaller places, that may not be the case. So, you might need to look at more national organizations. So, there are, you know, small teaching fellowships that some organizations put out that have created smaller courses from their large faculty subset just for residents. So there's, you know, there's local opportunities people should be looking at. And then there are national opportunities and probably regional based on, you know, your local chapters. But I I would say just start where you are. Start doing something that sounds interesting to you. Pick the brain of educators around you. You know, did you do a fellowship? Did you not? How did you get where you are? Like, because you'll find if you talk to enough people, that the the curves and turns and corners that got five people to the same place are all gonna be drastically different. And one of those may speak to you in a way that another does not. And, you know, I think the last thing I'll say is career development is, is an iterative process, much like being good at anything. And if you try one thing and it doesn't fit what you like, you know, you don't need to love to give lectures in order to be a great teacher right? I mean, if you're like, oh, I can't, I have social anxiety, right? That's okay. You don't have to do that in order to be successful, right? You can have a different portion that carves out what you love and what you enjoy. So, you know, it's not one size fits all. Talk to people and then try your hand at a couple different things and see what you like. And and then as a fellowship director, for instance, I'm just looking for people who want to learn for a reason. Like, what is your goal, right? Is it just to be a better educator? Is it because you want to you know, engage in research? Is it because you want to be in clerkship, you know, directorship or in the dean's office? Because all those things will say we should do different things with you, right? So, you know, that's why I think trying your handout in a couple different areas is important. And for junior faculty, you know, there's, there are nas- lots of national-based courses through a number of organizations. You know, there's obviously things through ASEP, there's things through CORD, um, there's things through SAM, all the major, and AEM, all the major organizations have um, an opportunity for you to take take some type of either didactic or hands-on type educational programming. Um, and many of those accept residents as well, or have, as I said, a small carve-out for residents. So, you know, look to the national organizations who are also out there to try to help develop people who, you know, don't necessarily have the time or interest in doing a fellowship, but want to develop better skill at being a better bedside teacher or about, you know, being a better program leader or learning how to implement a curriculum. So you can find all those things from our national organizations. And I I think that's one of the great things about emergency medicine, right, is that the organizations and their didactic programming is really set up to actually help you build a skill, not just as a researcher or as a doctor, but as a teacher and an educational program builder as an educational researcher. So there's so many things. And the last thing I'll say is email someone. You can email me. You can email any of the major educators right that are at your place that say, oh, like there's a vice chair of education or a program director or a clerkship director or just a faculty that I found a great connection with and ask them like, hey, what suggestions do you have for me? Because they're going to know your local resources better than anyone else outside your your institution. So I would just say, don't be afraid to ask people. I think residents often are concerned they're going to be a burden or a bother when they email and you know for me as an educator like if there's someone who's interested in what I do who wants to pick my brain you know I love that that's partly why I do the job I do. Um, so you know we're maybe I don't know if every group is like that but certainly within education we're like a subset of very excited mentors so
0: um, don't be uncomfortable reaching out totally fair that's that's very helpful so essentially the message is get your foot in the door try the things that you think you might be interested in. And then based on the experiences you have within those domains of, you know, education, go based off of that, essentially. Yeah. In terms of, and obviously this varies program to program, residency to residency, in terms of what of what kind of exposure that each individual resident might have to medical education. But I think this is something that's very common across specialties, across regardless of level of training, but essentially Bedside teaching, to some extent, is a part of the house of medicine that we will be exposed to, regardless of if it's advanced practice providers, whether it's junior faculty, senior faculty, and a junior faculty, or faculty you to know, residents or residents to medical students. But how can one, or how do you recommend, obviously in the busy pace of the emergency department that we often are working in, you know, juggling so many different tasks, and then also having a learner, um, how do we go about having some high yield? time or impact on their education as well? What advice would you offer to those people? So
1: I would start by saying that don't forget that you know plenty to teach that has nothing to do with medicine, first of all, right? Depending on the level of your learner, things about how to communicate, how to be efficient, how to document, critical care billing, right? All of those things that are happening in real time, those are things that are ripe for conversation as you're going all the time. My residents are like, oh, more documentation pearls, right? And and those are the senior residents. My junior residents are not asking me for how they should document, right? And so I think that this idea that remembering that every every resident learner that you have across and every medical student, based on the level they're at, they they're going to think something is important, and that group is going to be different. My PGY ones think something super important. My PGY fours want something very different. So you know, to recognize that. Medicine is one topic, and we can certainly talk about my personal opinion on how best to sort of up your game being a bedside teacher for the medical topics. But I would start just by saying that remember that you are a a resource for every part of how to be a successful clinician, including, you know, remembering how to find time to take a break, right? If, you know, if you can teach your residents how to understand how to find the right moment to go use the bathroom and eat something, right? You've also taught them something super important from a wellness perspective. So so start with, there are so many things to teach that are not just medicine. I'd say number two is that, try to put yourself in the shoes. And that's a lot harder when, you know, you've been practicing for 20 years, but to remember how utterly overwhelmed an intern is, right, with six patients and with, you know, remembering that you can help them very much by talking through how to prioritize your task list. And let's stop and go through what you have to do on these six patients and then tell me what you're going to do first, second, and third. And I think one of the big mistakes that people often do is they say, okay, let's talk about how to prioritize task list. Great, I'm going to tell you what you should do first, second, and third. So, you know, I think my first tip is the productive struggle of trying to figure something out on your own within within the range of what is not going to, push them over the deep end, right? (laughs) But the idea that they have to come up with some answer to you so that they can commit to it. And that can be in medicine topic. That can be a clinical question. That can be in a prioritization of your tasks. That can be in anything. But this idea that their performance means to you an opportunity for teaching, right? And a commitment means you know what's in their mind, which allows you to see what is where you expect the answer and where the answer is, right? I think that setting up a situation where you can force people to answer questions safely. And I start with all my interns and and sub eyes by saying something to the effect of look, I ask a lot of questions and I know that's super scary. I don't care if you get it right or wrong. The goal is for you to commit to an answer so we can know what's in your head. And I don't know what's in your head unless I get you to say it, right? So let's hear what's in your head. And then if it's wrong, we'll correct it. And if it's right, we'll add something to it. Right. So to remind every learner on your day-to-day experience that when you ask them questions and make them commit to answers, it is for their benefit and it allows you to teach them. So, you know, getting people to commit to answers with recognizing that you're, they're going to fail and setting that up early in your in your shift so that you can then rapid fire questions. What do you think about this? What if they were 50? What if they had heart failure? Right? We, in emergency medicine, we call that the "what if" game, right? You know, what if they were at a community hospital? What if they had an allergy to penicillin? Right? Um, you can teach five things in a, in 60 seconds by just asking. Change the situation for your patient, and that you know that's probably one of my favorite things to do at the bedside because it encourages what you know is one of my big research topics, which is adaptive expertise. Taking what you know and figuring out how to implement it in a situation that is not the same that you're currently operating within. And I think we, we don't utilize that skill or tactic enough. And it's a super quick thing that you can do to teach a single topic with just a single question. What if they had AFib? <laughs> what if they you know, were anticoagulated? Knowing that that would change your answer as the teacher and making sure that the learner understands the nuance and difference in how that patient would be diagnosed or managed or treated with that that small little difference in, in the patient demographic or the patient patient presentation. And then lastly, I'll say that talking out loud, which I think sounds crazy because when you talk, it is usually out loud, um, but talking your inside brain out loud. So residents will tell, you know, their decision making. This is why I'm thinking I'm doing, you know, I want to do A, B, and C. And, you know, I read, okay, reiterate back to me, like, what is your rationale for that? And they may give me an answer and I'll say, okay, my rationale for this. And I explain my inside brain to the learner because, you know, I think one of the things that we assume is that when a learner makes the right decision, it is for the correct reason. And that is one of the biggest traps as a teacher that is a detriment to your learner because pattern recognition and sometimes happening into the right decision doesn't mean you know why you're doing it, right? So The the why question, which I think many learners are frustrated by. Why are you doing that? (laughs) Why did you give that medication? Why did you send that lab test? That's the right lab test to send. Why did you send it? Not because it was in the order set, right? But because you understand what it's looking for. And so, you know, I think that you can ask questions in a way that doesn't make you sound like you're, you know, to use the, the terrible phrase, pimping people. If you set up the situation correctly, that they understand that you need to know what they're thinking. And they need to commit so that you can best teach them. Because if we don't get people to tell us the rationale behind their decision making, and we don't get people to commit to answers, it's very easy for us to assume correct means knowledgeable, and for learners to assume, oh, I would have done that, you know, when in fact, had you forced them to give you an answer that would not have been what they chose. So I think those are some some quick tips that I encourage my faculty to do and that I try to utilize on all my shifts to make sure that the learners are really getting something concrete and usable out of it because our patients, the people they're seeing every day are the biggest opportunities for them to figure out what they don't know and for you to figure out what they don't know so that you can help them fill those gaps.
0: No, I, I totally agree. And the fact that you mentioned the what-if scenario of changing the presentation by changing one aspect or one factor of that equation can give you a completely different answer in terms of your workup or your diagnosis or in terms of your treatment options. And it's, it's very impactful. As an early learner myself, I've been uh, in that circumstance many times where my faculty has asked me, you know, what if the patient had X, Y, and Z? And now I have to think, huh, what would I do differently in that circumstance? And it's a great way to very quickly on the fly essentially uh, get a new patient presentation. Now, in terms of moving forward in regards to some of the things that we can move forward in terms of our education, self-education, more so, uh, you know, we have bedside teaching, but how do we go about taking a step back and reflecting internally? And this varies, obviously, year to year, PGY1, PGY2, and so on. But how do we go about focusing to keep learning? What recommendations or strategies do you have for residents to keep on learning different things as they progress through residency?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll say that, disclaimer, this is a topic I'm fascinated by, <laughs> so I could talk forever about, which I'm not going to, don't worry. So, you know, the idea that the way you learn, for instance, in medical school is the same as the way you learn in residency is something that I think if you ask a medical student, hey, do you think that you're going to use this same technique when they get to residency? They're going to, say, oh yeah, of course, you know, my highlighting and reading is is going to be great. And then anyone who now has already gone from med school to residency recognizes that the moment you you move from a very structured sort of either grade or test-based experience into a much less structured, much more difficult way to tell what your performance is because it's based on like the patient did okay. <laughs> no one said anything bad during my shift to me at the end, right? It changes people's mindset. And I think that people get to residency and suddenly feel like they have no idea how to learn anymore. There is a you know ridiculous increase in the amount of content they need to learn. They feel like they don't have the time to learn. I can't read a chapter on anything. And in fact, you know, that type of structured text reading is really, especially for junior residents, probably not the best way for them to go about it. I'll say that, you know, the this idea that you can understand what you don't know, it seems pretty easy, right? Well, of course I don't know it, but you you when you look at learners and You know, if you ask anyone at the beginning or in the middle or the end of a shift, like, what did you want to learn today? Or what did you learn today? People often be like, I learned anything, (laughs) right? I just took care of patients and I was so busy. And in fact, you know, I know that we've had 10 different conversations around something they didn't understand. And so I think this idea that you're having more opportunistic learning moments where there's an opportunity to learn something because I asked you a question and you don't know the answer. That's a gap. Whether or not you as a learner identify that as a gap is a big deal because it's those moments of recognition, right? The light bulb has to go off in that person's head based on whether or not they couldn't do the thing they wanted to do, or they couldn't answer the question, or they couldn't create the differential, or they didn't know the right drug, or they got home and they looked up the patient and the patient on the inpatient team had a totally different diagnosis. And they have no idea why, How did? where did that come from, Right. So there are all these moments along your day that if you are paying attention and your brain is primed to this, you can identify a gap of something you don't know. As an educator, figuring out how learners can best do that based on what they view are are the most important things they're trying to learn, what they are in terms of level of openness to recognizing they got something wrong, right? You know, it's very different in everybody my I, I work with a couple with three other people who are my like lifelong friends and research colleagues, And we've been looking specifically at like how do people who are successful learners in residency identify things they don't know, plan and plan to learn them and then learn them. And you know, I'd say the reason I said earlier that you need to force your learners to commit to answers is because one of the best way for people to know they don't know something or can't do something is for them to have to perform. And that may be verbally, right? Giving a differential diagnosis, that might be procedurally having to put in a central line and not, you know, contextually in that situation, knowing what the right steps are. But if they don't actually have to perform in some way, it can be very easy for people to miss that there's something they don't know. So, you know, for junior learners in particular, having this this opportunity to be forced to commit and perform and find, you know, it's it's that discomfort, uncomfortable feeling, right? I don't feel comfortable. I'm not, that is a moment. That should be a light bulb moment. When you feel uncomfortable in a situation and you don't know what to do, you need to not just feel uncomfortable and feel badly about it, right? And self-flagellate with all these negative emotions, but you need to say, ah, hey, Dr. Regan, I feel uncomfortable that I don't know what the answer to that question is. Can you help me understand what I'm missing, right? So, you know, the the most important thing, especially for junior learners, is for them to figure out what the moments are during their everyday experience that they can go home and then say, I need to look up these four things, you know, what the mechanism of this drug is, you know, how to reduce a nursemaid's elbow, whatever it is they didn't know on their shift, right? Not that they have to go and read an entire chapter on musculoskeletal injuries in pediatric patients, but they need to read the thing they didn't know. And if people do that as junior residents, They will um, build huge amounts of knowledge because every day there will be five or ten things they don't know. As senior residents, I think we find that you know this is where the residents are building huge mind maps on Evernote and you know collating articles and linking evidence. And junior residents, I think, look at seniors and say, "Oh my God, I should be doing that. Why don't I have a whole file of Evernotes?" Because that's really difficult as a junior resident. You're still trying to figure out like where the bathroom is and like how to get through 12 hours. So, you know, recognizing there is no one size fits all way to learn that something that, you know, you like to read may not be something I like to read. Maybe I need more pictures. Maybe I need something that's more bulleted. Maybe I like podcasts because I'm, I like to listen as well instead of reading on my own, but understanding that the process you enter a residency with, will probably go through three or four or five iterations before you find a thing that works for you. But that thing has to include some ability to find what you don't know. That has to include some ability to understand what you need to address first and second and third. And then that has to have some piece of, of understanding that what you're using to fill your knowledge is a trustworthy resource of some kind, right? If you can hit those three or you can have an educator work with you to hit those three pieces, that is the first step To developing what I had mentioned earlier, which is adaptive expertise, which will make you a great functional clinician in emergency medicine. You know, adaptive expertise, for those of you that don't know, if you think of routine expertise, think of like the sushi chef who doesn't even have to look in order to make their sushi, right? You walk by and it's like the most beautiful roll of sushi and it took them like 47 seconds. They all look exactly the same, they're perfect. If you said to that sushi chef, hey, Can you make me a role that looks like this and has these ingredients, even though they've never made that? Because they are an expert, they can take what they know and address a situation they've never seen before, right? And I'm confident that the man who makes my sushi, who I love very much, who I see every Thursday, could make me a role he's never made before because he is an expert and he can take his prior knowledge and apply it to a new situation. That's what we're looking for for residents is finding out what you know, What you don't know, building what you don't know into something you know, and then making sure that the skills you have as a learner allow you to adapt that to something in the future you've never seen before. And that's probably most important in our specialty because every day can be something you've never seen before, right? As opposed to maybe a specialty where there might be less variability day to day. It's so important for our learners to be adaptive in understanding what they know and what they don't know and in being. Okay, not knowing, not that you should not fill it, but that it's impossible to know everything, right? So, develop good skill at learning. And I would say the most important thing, I think I've said it now three or four times, is to understand how to figure out what you don't know so that you
0: can learn it. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Regan. The different pearls you've been able to offer over different topics we've obviously discussed in the course of this conversation have been very instrumental, uh, both on a personal level as well as uh, everyone else who's been listening. So I just want to take this time to thank you so much for obviously speaking with me today. And for all the listeners, thank you for everything that you do. It's been a pleasure having you here, Dr. Regan. Uh, can't wait to hopefully meet in person sometime. Uh, and to everyone who's listening, Till next time, you guys take care.